Have you ever felt micromanaged? Is your manager or boss always looking over your shoulder, commenting on everything you do? Well, if so, this week we want to talk about the pitfalls and dangers of micromanaging in the veterinary practice. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And micromanagement is a topic that needs to be talked about because if your boss, if your supervisor, if your manager, heck, even if a coworker is constantly interrupting you and getting all up in your business, then you may be victim to micromanaging. And this week, we want to talk about the good, the bad, and what to avoid and how you can deal with a micromanager. But before we talk about dealing with all of that, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And Becky, micromanaging in the veterinary practice is something that you and I have been talking about, writing about, and we've talked about it on the podcast in various forms over the past six and a half years. I mean, it's a real issue, but I'd like to start out with some ground rules for the viewfinders because I think a lot of people have different perceptions and even definitions of micromanagement. So for today's conversation, Becky, what do we mean when we say micromanagement? I guess to me, micromanaging is giving somebody an expected outcome and then dictating each specific step in between as opposed to allowing the autonomy of getting from A to B as as the, the designated individual would choose to do so. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's taking away your autonomy, your individuality, your control. And I think that, you know, viewfinders, there's a huge difference between being a manager, a good manager, being a good supervisor, boss, leader, you know, right? Because those are, there are great benefits of actually making sure that people are doing things the way they should be doing them when they should be doing them and all that stuff, right? But if you are constantly interrupting people, if you're making people feel as if, you know, hey, everything I do is under scrutiny and you're just constantly double-checking behind me, then you take away their sense of control. And when you take away people's control, Becky... It affects their self-esteem, they are stressed out, they get anxious, they can't, you know, work well with other people, they lose motivation. I mean, they stop trusting everybody. I mean, so I think ultimately micromanagement, while at first blush, managers and bosses are saying, well, I've got to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be doing it. But in the end, micromanaging actually decreases the efficiencies and productivities. Am I right? Oh, for sure. Right. Because now you have two people doing one task. (laughs) Right. Because. And it's taking twice as long because what the individual does, they have to kind of stop and pivot to the instructions or the designation of an individual who is micromanaging the task to the manager, to the owner, to whoever is the one basically making making it difficult. So you've got two people doing one thing. And I, I kind of want to elaborate, too, on what you're saying about the negative impacts to the individual, because... W- it is it is versus the positive impact of autonomy, right? right? So, like, not only are you taking away from them, but you are missing out on an opportunity because it feels really good to give somebody a task, let them do it, and then reward them and, and celebrate them for, for doing so. And it makes them feel accomplished when they implemented, they executed, and they have the autonomy to do it. So, I mean, we're, it's, it's not only doing bad, but it's missing a huge opportunity to do good by our employees and our coworkers and our colleagues. And, um, it's damaging and it's, I think personally, a big problem in our profession. And what I want to say is 
before we go really far, I understand it's hard to delegate and it's hard not to micromanage. We are a lot of type A people and in our profession, we are a lot of perfectionists in our profession. And the outcome can be bad. That's the thing. I think that is makes it feel justifiable is yes but if this gets messed up then right. a patient dies a, right. a sample is ruined money is wasted a client's time so th- the outcomes are serious you know i think about how and this sounds silly but you know when we when we think about little kids and we say you know you give a, a child a task hey go put this in the basket and they do it we cheer for them and that sounds like a really extreme example but it's actually kind of we we need to put kid gloves on with each other and think about how we can give someone a task and celebrate them for completing it however they choose to get there. Um, and I, and I really think that's an important, the important part of this conversation is not just saying like, oh, you are a micromanager or picking on any one person for micromanaging, but really trying to help elaborate and bring forth to to the discussion the repercussions of it and the opportunity for the people around us yeah and again guys this has a ripple effect throughout your team it is negative in any way shape and form and if you've heard me lecture or if you've read anything i've written for the past 25 years you've probably come across this phrase that i use constantly and becky i know you're familiar with this and that is this phrase that i use called train to trust and the reason that i originated that sort of work philosophy years ago was because i realized that i needed to be able to trust my employees to do the things that they needed to do just like becky said the concept consequences can be high, right? I mean, the, the if we mess something up, you know, it, it can be serious. So I knew I needed to train them so that I could trust them because I think that first and foremost, the biggest cause of micromanagement is when your supervisor, superior, doesn't trust you, right? So they're constantly then double-checking, going behind you, whatever. And as Becky said, that's just a waste of time because now two people are literally doing the one thing job. So I think lack of trust, Becky, is one of those areas that we need to really focus on within the clinic. Say, why, why are you behaving this way, manager or boss, right? And I think that ultimately you solve this trust issue through training. And, and again, people say, well, I don't understand how you can train somebody. They're going to mess up and blah, blah, blah. Well, well, that's why you need to train them in a better way. Like Because if you're a football team, Becky, let's just say, or any sports team, right, you're out there. You don't typically put your players in a situation where they can have catastrophic injury or damage, right? You try to do everything in your power to minimize the real risk, but you still let them run the plays and do the things, right? And so this is what you have to do with training. And and while today is not about how to set up a a staff training program, and Lord knows I've written books and videos and all that over the years on how to do it, but you do need to do it. Like you need to have a real training program. Like again, Becky, this is where I break from most of my colleagues. They go, well, training is kind of like on the job training. And that's only part of it. It, right? There needs to be actually a structured training formula and process behind that. Because if you're expecting them to show up in surgery and figure it out, well, that's not training. <laughs> Again, you know, I don't trust you. I haven't trained you. So we could go on and on with examples. But Becky, I think for me, the biggest thing is lack of trust. The second thing, and you touched on it so presciently already, and that is we tend to be a profession full of perfectionists. So maybe explain how perfectionism can lead to micromanaging in the vet clinic. Well, yeah, yes. But first, can I go back to what you just said about trust? Because that is so important. And what I want to say there is it's like if you say, oh, I totally trust my teams, then the question is, then why 
then why do you not just let them go? Because then what they will say, well, because, and I think if you really start to be honest to yourself, and I'm just saying, sit down with a piece of paper and write down this answer and really truly journal it out and reflect it, you will find it goes back to either trust or consequences. And we have talked about the shame culture. And in our clinics, if you don't have a healthy culture and a safe place for mistakes, micromanaging wins because the fear of repercussions, the fear of being shamed or reprimanded in front of everybody or the way that that culture is going to come down on you drives this overreaching need to control everything around you to make sure nothing goes wrong. And it's a major red culture flag. Right. And Becky, let me just expound on that because I think it's even worse many cases because this is fear of failure. See, the manager yes. fears that, oh my gosh, my boss, this is going to blow back on me. Yes. If we if we fail this client, then I'm going to get yelled at. So this is why I always say this is a leadership issue. Like micromanagement starts at the top. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Exactly. I think, and I just wanted to really like unpack that more because I think it's really meaningful, right? I don't want to skip over really looking at the trust factor because it might be it's not that I don't trust that person. It's I don't trust my management to be right. okay with a mistake and it's going to come down on me. And so maybe you do trust that person, but there is somebody you do not trust that is causing you to micromanage the outcome. And a- that's the part that I think is really important to like sit with for a minute. So I'm really glad we took that that time. The perfectionist part of it, 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 it I think, again, perfectionism, uh, it is a form of self-harm. <laughs> We've talked about that. Right. And I think it links right back to uh. the trust is I have to guarantee a positive outcome because it's not a safe place for a negative outcome. I'm not willing to forgive myself if a patient dies. I'm not willing to accept that that is part of veterinary medicine and that we will have patients die. I am not willing to accept that this is not a perfect science and that this is practice and I will mess up and it will have terrible consequences. Therefore, I will control every single aspect of every single thing as much as I can to prevent anything bad from ever happening. Yeah. And, you know, Becky, there's one other element to perfectionism that I've tried to capture in some of my writings over the years, and that is this rigidity, right? So I think one of the issues with being a perfectionist is just like Becky said, right? Like, you know, I can't stand to lose or have a failure point at all. But I think the other part that's maybe just as damaging is the inability to adapt and shift and, and move beyond whatever your plan was, right? So we get, I think a lot of times with perfectionists, we sort of, this is the way, you know, yeah. and, and maybe it's the right way. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, and maybe it's even the ideal way, but it's not always the best way for the situation. So I think that if you're a perfectionist out there and you're struggling with this, don't just fall back to the default position of, well, I'm a perfectionist because I don't like to fail. Also recognize that you might not be as open-minded, adaptable, and flexible in life as you need to be, which again contributes to some negative outcomes. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is, is we have this sort of um, exposure fatigue of not being able to control outcomes as much as we would like to. So we over control where we can, you know, we know we can do better medicine than sometimes our clients or our situations allow for. And so therefore we surrender to less than what we would actually want to do. And we get into that ethical fatigue thing we've talked about before, but I think it can spill over into 
the need to control the things we know we can to the point of of without deviating right without that, that, deviating absolutely. because we have uh, to, because we're fatigued from doing it right. when we don't have control yeah it is such a tough way so again if you're out there and you're you're hearing this you either might be you know affected by it or you might be dealing with it as a manager or whatever i think another thing too becky that leads to it because i think i want to start off today viewfinders kind of talking about why does it actually happen because i think too often we think well that's because you know i'm a great manager <laughs> I demand perfectionism. But I think, you know, another reason is because I think a lot of managers don't know how to delegate effectively. Becky, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, oh, I'm going to yeah. throw it out there. I mean, you know, th- these people were promoted or somehow plopped in these positions and they don't know anything other than, well, do it this way, you know, because that's what got me here. So, you know, but but it's not the right way to manage people, right? And so I think that when people have uncertainty about how to do their job, you know what you fall back on, Becky, is do it my way, do it this way. I better double check you. I better triple check you, Right. Yeah, I mean, right. And again, I think that it is probably also a trickle down effect. I think a lot of times micromanagers are micromanaged. And so we know middle management is a little bit of that. And then it it, it is the part where you're like, hey, I need you to do this because I have to answer to somebody else about the fact that you did it. And so I need you to do it this way. I think we can find an opportunity to ask a lot more questions than we do. And I think we have a tendency to um, explain a lot. And and even without recognizing that as micromanagement, as opposed to asking more questions about a person's intent, plans, yes, um, yes. or as we define what the outcome would look like, asking questions about how they see themselves reaching that outcome before we ever get started. And that's the point of over-communication. Um, you know, and that's... A, that's a thing um just you know um making little name drops here uh my <laughs> my program director virginia corrigan talks about it at app state is that over communicate if you think you're communicating enough probably go two steps more. further <laughs> right, right, and, right. and communicate even more totally and, agree yep. and that is an opportunity i think we're missing yep. and um so setting up those expectations in the beginning through asking intentional questions yeah and i like it becky you said something there that kind of sparked another you know kind of those issues around why micromanaging is bad at least in my opinion. And that is, I think that a lot of times, and this is in vet medicine in general, but now micromanaging specifically, I think you can spot the sometimes when people focus so much on the how, right? The the actual step one, two, three, four, five. And I know people have said, well, gosh, you had these massive staff training where you went through all the steps. That's right. But we really focus, I mean, you have to train them for the how, but we, from a management leadership standpoint, you really focus on what and why are we doing this, right? I mean, and, and, and I think there's a huge difference between like telling somebody to go and do something, knowing that you've trained them to do this, as opposed to telling, going, and telling somebody to do something and then saying, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? Just constantly, you know, sort of aggravating them (laughs) or nagging them about it. Uh, And I think that, you know, when you start to restrict people like that, Becky, that really leads up to resentment in my opinion, right? Because now you're, I mean, these people, and they become fearful eventually. They stop actually trying to solve problems. You know, I, I used to always say, you know, gosh, what I'm really looking for in my clinics are problem spotters. And I think a lot of times people misunderstood what I was saying. I want people that have their eyes wide open, their ears wide open, and they feel free to speak and say, I think I've spotted a problem here, right? Because solving the problem is an important skill too. But honestly, I need people who will speak up and seek out the problem so that I know what to solve. 
Hopefully that made a little sense. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it makes it a safe place to say something. And we get to be, you know, idea fairies and work together to come up with what those solutions look like as a team. And like, it, it creates such a positive work environment and it creates such a safe place. And again, if you're really worried about have you done the training there are ways to say you know before you hit that send button so to say that metaphorical send button let me just double check everything and then next time i'll know you're good to go on this on your very own um or put a policy in place that things get double checked no matter what x y and z right there's ways to make sure you're not removing autonomy but that you are ensuring safety Right. And, and that's the whole training process. I, again, I love what you just said there, Becky, because, you know, people t- do tend to think in absolutes extremes, right? They're like, oh my gosh, you know, how, how are you going to let people, I, I used to call it failing safely, right? Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I mean, creating guardrails. In fact, my latest newsletter, you know, op-ed for Vertical Vet was all about guardrails, right? And, and I know I actually, in, in today's veterinary business, I had uh, this last one also addressed clinical guardrails for young associates who are struggling to find their footing in a medical sense. And so, you know, again, you can't put people in a situation, Becky, where they can have a cat- catastrophic right. failure, right? No, I right. mean, that that's that's bad leadership. <laughs> that's just plain and simple, <laughs> you know. Um, so, again, when people act like this is an extreme position to allow people to fail safely, we're talking about like like Becky said, like, hey, did you get out this? Did you did you set up the anesthesia machine, right? Well, you go and check it to make sure that they set it up correctly before you put an animal on it, right? I mean, the time to find out that they didn't turn off or open up the pop off valve is not whenever the animal is, you know, coding there in, in front of your your eyes. So, yeah, you know, no, like, and there's re- nothing wrong with having a policy in your clinic that says no matter who sets up anesthesia, the assistant that's working Double with them it. and the person that's Follows working with them goes right. behind because we all mess up and checks and checklists are the way that we ensure safety. So you have a checklist, you teach somebody how to check the boxes, you have a policy that somebody runs their eyes over it one more time, and then you have a safe patient no matter what, and there's nothing wrong with that, and everybody understands that's the policy. But I'll tell you, when you allow creativity and you allow people to execute things the way that they best adapt, as long as the outcome is safe and positive, you might learn some great ways to do things in different ways to do things. And we get caught up in the safety of our box, but we, we really lose the opportunity to do better and to learn better because when we bring in new talent, part of what we want is for them to contribute to our team based on their experience, right? That's why we hire people. So then why do we take, you know, these individuals who have so much experience that we hired them and then shove them in the little box that is our way of doing things. Oh, oh guys, I'll be point blank. Micromanaging not only stifles creativity, but it prevents progress yeah. by definition, by definition. All right, Becky, let's let's kind of turn the last little bit of this today's conversation. What to do if you actually are the victim of this? Like, so your boss, your manager, your whomever, the person you report to is a micromanager. And I'll tell you, Becky, this is one of those rare situations that I don't know that going directly to that person and calling them out as a micromanager is actually helpful. I mean, so <laughs> hear me hear me out for just a second. You know, I'm all about direct communication, but this is one of those that I'm a little hesitant to tell you guys to say, go up and tell this person, hey, you're micromanaging me because I think, I don't think it's going to work. I do think there needs to be 
hopefully they've got a supervisor or a boss or the owner. Now, heaven forbid, if it's the owner, you know, that's that's tricky. But you do need to be able to talk to someone in a safe fashion and say, I feel this way. I feel that I'm being micromanaged. Because Becky, again, a person who is prone to micromanagement is kind of like going up to the bully and saying, hey, stop picking on me. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid yeah. they might just pick on you even more. Okay, I'm excited to answer this one because I think personally... It doesn't matter if you're being micromanaged or not. The way to combat in this situation is communication. And you can over-communicate whether somebody else is over-communicating or not. And the less somebody else is communicating, the more you can communicate with them. And so True. when you're given a task, you reflect back what you heard the task to be. And then you can give either a little synopsis or I personally lean into intentional questions. So is there a specific way you want me to knock this out or is this, or is it pretty much up to me as long as when I'm done, surgery is good to go and clean Uh surgery pack. This is a great example. Let's talk about a surgery pack. You're new to a clinic. Hey, the way I know to wrap a spay pack looks like this. Is this how your clinic does it? I don't see a sign up here or a checklist about your spay packs. So I can right, ask the right. questions to make sure that the outcome that I see aligns with the outcome the person just told me that they want. So for me, whether you are or are not being micromanaged, you can ask the questions to make sure the outcome is okay. If you're mid-being micromanaged, you can still kind of take a pause and say, oh, okay, I hear you want me to do it this way. I was, my plan was this. I like the way that you've explained this to me so I didn't do it the wrong way. X, Y, or Z. I think there's ways to just explain your way all the way to the outcome. Yeah. And again, so I love focusing on the okay, because I think so many small independent clinics, like it is the boss, the manager, they've got nobody to go above. So I love this, Becky, because you're right. I mean, we do need to be able to have some type of mechanism to say to the person, I feel this way. And and for me, guys, you already know what I'm going to say, write it down. That's where I'm going to start always is writing down say, hey, you know, um, like, let's say, and let's go back to the, the surgery, the packs, the whatever, a specific issue came up in your clinic and your manager you feel really was overstepping their bounds. It wasn't quite to harassment, maybe, but you know, it's getting very uncomfortable for you. So maybe this is a good opportunity to say, hey, let's address how we actually set up surgery or double check anesthesia machines or prep packs or whatever, right? And so write that down, the steps, because sometimes if you show the boss actually the thoroughness and actually how you've got a plan for this, you may be able to build trust, right? Because ultimately, if it's trained to trust and my boss isn't going to train me, then I need to show them that I'm trained and they can trust me, right? So I'm kind of working this thing backwards. But I will say, Becky, you know, it's it is hard. I, I guess what I was trying to point out to be cautious is using the terminology, right? You know, if you go into your manager and say, you're a micromanager, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that name calling might not get us the desired, you know, result. But I do think that by writing it down, having a plan and having a specific example, you might be able to build trust because I think once you have a foundation of trust, then maybe some of this micromanagement goes away. I, well, that's exactly right. And, and, and the, you're exactly, I agree. You don't, being, using negative words creates negative feelings and, and negative emotions. And, and certainly saying something like, you're, anytime you start it with, you're doing this is probably going to cause defensiveness. But if we say, 
I felt like I lost some autonomy on that project you gave right. me. And I was wondering how in the future I could implement this way I was thinking about doing it, would it be possible if I tried this? I think is an opportunity to, to go back and say, I felt this way, or I felt I lost out on this. It it changes the conversation. That's like basic psychology of working with people, right? Is is take those, make them as many I statements as you can. Right. And help your manager because like you said in the very beginning, we can go full circle. You might be managed by someone who was never taught how to be managed and who right. was not taught leadership skills. And we can work together to develop them and we can forgive our leaders for still learning while they're leading. Yeah. And again, I, I want to also take one step back. Sometimes they're right. Like sometimes they're micromanaging you because your work isn't what you yeah, think it should be, right? Yeah. So, so, I mean, just be open-minded on all regards here, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying that's always the case and maybe it's almost never the case, but the reality is the first thing, I think if you feel this way, reflect on your own self, your own actions, your own work, whatever, because I, I think Becky... Sometimes, you know, again, it's really easy to blame exterior, the world around us when, when we're really the problem. So I, I always, I know I, I know I've shared this with you, you before personally, Becky, but also I'm sure we've talked about it on the podcast and I know I talk about it in my lectures. Anytime when the world or a person or some situation tells me that, ooh, that was bad, Ernie, the first thing I do, and I think this is healthy, is I reflect and say, was it bad? Was it? Am I at fault? Right. I'm going to hold that mirror right up to me first because I think that that's the mark of someone who's actually trying to solve the problem. Right. Not yeah. just instantly go. Well, wait. What do you mean I did this wrong? You know, you don't do so good yourself over there. I think anytime <laughs> you know that you you want to really be self reflective. Again, don't use the term micromanagement. I think we've we've kind of talked about that. Um, and and again, Becky, for me, at the end of the day, if I'm trying to have this conversation with the boss, I'm trying to explain to them that hey, you know, um. We're capable. We're competent. We have a system here, uh, and and maybe you have to even create the system. That's why I think if you can write this stuff down, it'll cause you to, it'll force you to self reflect on your own contribution potentially to this situation, and then maybe show in concrete, you know, language how you're solving this problem. I th I think that that that's a, a you know you can be diplomatic with this, right, Becky? I mean, you can you can you can have a civil conversation now if it is starting to stray and Becky some of these workplaces th this is harassment I'm not going to joke I mean there there are some bosses out there Becky that are awful with this stuff and they use this as a bully stick right I mean they they micromanage people to beat them into submission literally right I mean they want that control and power because of their own inadequacies or yeah sure I mean the super chicken thing I've talked about right. before where we just peck each other to death because that's who we are as people and that's you know what we know is we're combating culture difficulties across the board and we look at these little micro causes these these potential yeah, right, right. red flags that could be happening and in in little areas of microaggression right and definitely mm -hmm. something like this is that um and and it's something that more than anything is inhibiting like we talked about and so if you're like how can i empower my teams better it's an opportunity to say oh hey am i doing this as well as here's how i fix what I'm, I, I might be doing. And I feel like this is, I'm excited about this conversation because I think it's really an area where we all are guilty because of our tendency to want perfect outcomes and to have our own personal, you know, um, what do I want to say? I guess, um, 
iron in the fire, <laughs> you right, know, right, to right. where it, it, the outcome is really, is really important to us and we're invested. Um, and also we have a lot of opportunity here. Yeah. And again, maybe the other part of the equation, just briefly, maybe you feel I'm a micromanager. Maybe I have these tendencies in my personal or professional life. I think the first thing to do is to to really start to practice delegating. And, and Becky, I think delegation can start off really easily. Like find, you know what the skills, what you know what the superpowers are of your team members, right? So let's say Becky is really good at whatever, prepping packs, autoclaving, keeping the treatment area neat and orderly, right? Whatever it is, give her control of that, right? Let her own that. Say, Becky, you know, pull her in the office and have this conversation saying, Becky, you know, again, set an expectation, set goals, and then let Becky do all the howls. Does that make sense, Becky? I mean, I think that that we've got to train ourselves to learn to delegate. We can't delegate until we trust the system. So start off simply, lean into Becky's superpowers. Say, Becky, here's my expectations. I expect these packs to be ready for surgery and the surgery suite to be orderly, whatever, right? And then say, Becky, go do it. And then back away. So, okay, yeah, we. I love that you mentioned this because when I talk in, in lectures about delegating as a as a form of self-care, basically, okay, right. a lot of people will say I'm guilty. I don't delegate. And when I do delegate, I micromanage it. This is something that I find a lot of people will self-report a, as a problem. So I'm really glad you brought that solution up, right? That we, how can we in ourselves combat this? And you're exactly right. Practice makes perfect. So you find that person you trust and you empower them and right. And not just saying, Hey, Go do this, but um, you know, hey, you know, Becky, what I love is every time I open a surgery pack that you've wrapped, right. it just brings me pure joy. Right. I'm wondering if you can sh- create um visual of how you do this and create a list of everything that's in the pack and the order that you wrap it in. And could you make a quick little video that we can use as part of our training process and then can be used as a reference for when you're not here? Because what I know is you are my superstar pack wrapper and you've given the outcome you're expected. You've given the like what you would like it to look like when they're done and the reason that you're choosing them for that and what the effect of the work they're going to do is. And I think that is really empowering. And then you don't say, okay, so I need you to use your camera or this camera. I need you to do it on the lunchtime, whatever it is. And then you don't come back 5,000 times and let me check this and that and the other, right? So I think that's a a breakdown of what it looks like when you're practicing delegation. Because I think you're exactly right. It takes practice and leaning into the employees that you are already leaning into that you just don't realize that you are. There are people in your practice that you give a task to and walk away. Yeah, Laura used to tell our managers that basically when it was delegating, she used to say this little phrase, she would say, it's the what? It's the expectation and it's the how. And basically she said, all I did was I I tell you what I want and what I expect. I leave the how up to you guys, right? Now, if you don't give me what I'm asking for with the expectations that we've agreed upon, then I'm going to have to come back and and maybe reevaluate your how. But I'm going to leave you with the how. And I think, Becky, that's delegation at its simplest, you know, that's actually the most important because... You, guys, Becky said it's self-preservation, right? This is a self-care. Like if, if you try to constantly do 
everything yeah. in your clinic, you're going to burn out. Like that, that's just plain and simple. But more importantly, you're not going to do anything well. You're not going to be able to advance in your career. You're not going to find that joy and satisfaction of solving things because you're constantly running behind people trying to solve their problems. And, and again, you know, Becky, I, I think I feel really fortunate because Early in my career, I kind of discovered this train to trust. And then once I trusted you, you were off. I did the the what? I did the expectations. You get creative. Solve it better than I can solve it. I don't know. Yeah. This is just how I do it, but figure out your own better way, right? And as long as we continue to get the outcomes, the results, then I didn't I didn't step in. Yeah, I love it so much. I think that I think we have a lot of practice that we can all do in in this area and I think it's such an important conversation and we all got here on somebody else's shoulders. Somebody right. else empowered us, somebody else delegated to us. We've all had that feeling and so I think it's such a great thing to lean into and think how was I empowered and who did that for me and how can I emulate that for those around me? Guys, we'd love to hear what you think about this issue of micromanagement. Are you in a micromanaged situation? If so, what are the things you're doing to try to get out of it? If you have a micromanaging tendency, what are you doing to work on those micromanaging tendencies? And what about delegation? What have you found to work and not work? And what advice would you have for us? Becky, how can they share what they'd like to share with us? Well, please come and over-communicate to us because that is truly <laughs> the most effective way to, to get the things done. And you can over-communicate on Facebook and Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder. And you can shoot us an email at veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you're critical, uh, again, it's Vet Tech Podcast. You can definitely give us all, the, you know, just anything you want to get off your chest that we've done wrong. Just hit us up over there. We, we love to hear from you it's at Vet Tech space. Podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, until next week, we hope that you aren't being micromanaged and certainly don't micromanage others. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.